CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for being with us for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, here we are, midweek already. How did that happen, uh, Greg? I love it. I just got back from vacation yesterday. Yeah, Greg, Greg Bluestein. And by the way, uh, of course, that is Greg Bluestein, who uh, is a political reporter, and I always say the lead political reporter for the AJC. He doesn't like to hear that, but he f- has more bylines than any other reporter in the paper, so it seems to work for me. And Greg Bluestein, if you don't mind, we should say... You had a birthday over the weekend. Happy birthday, Greg. Thank you. We were in Hilton Head with the family to celebrate. Wow, Greg's finally 30 years old. Wow. Thank goodness. (laughs) A couple years older than that. All right. Thank you for being here. Uh, If you're watching us on Facebook Live, uh, right across from him is Eric Tannenblatt. He is a well-known Republican in Georgia. He has worked with uh, everybody from Mitt Romney, both of the Bushes when they ran their presidential campaigns, to Senator Paul Coverdale, and uh, continues to be one of the most significant fundraisers in the Southeast as well. How are you, Eric? I am doing well. Glad to be back. I should also point out the global, the head of global government affairs for Denton's, the world's largest law firm. That's right. All right. Thank you. Cody Hall is with us. He is press secretary to uh, Governor Brian Kemp. Cody, how's it going over there in the governor's office? You've now been there for, it's been, what, five months now? It feels like a lot longer than that. Um, (laughs) But we had a a restful weekend, so we're ready to hit the ground running this week. Good, good. Uh, And we're so happy to have Stacey Evans back with us. Uh, You all know that Stacey uh, ran for governor in the Democratic primaries in 2018. She uh, served in the state legislature and... uh, and now we can say definitively, we can lay to rest rumors that she was going to run for chair of the Cobb County Commission because she is no longer living in Cobb County. <laughs> Hi, Stacey. Hi, good to be here. Yes, we closed on a house this morning, so we are officially Fulton County residents. Congratulations. Congratulations. Um, all right, I want to make a couple of announcements and then we'll plunge into the news. First of all, um, remember, we're going to be in Cartersville. On Monday night, this coming Monday night, June 3rd, we're going to do the show in front of a live audience at the historic Grand Theater. Tom Faust was up there doing a site survey, and he came back and said, wow, that's a beautiful theater. And it is. And we're excited that the Grand uh, is going to host us up there. Uh, We've also got a number of legislators from up in the Cartersville and Rome area coming to be part of the show. Uh, Bruce Thompson, Senator Bruce Thompson, is going to be with us. Uh, Katie Dempsey from Rome is uh, coming down to uh, uh, be part of the show. Uh, Matthew Gamble is going to be there. So they're all going to be there. And and, um, although they're not on the panel, we're going to turn this into a town meeting and everybody's going to get a chance to talk about the issues that matter to them. So we still have seats. It's a big venue. Join us if you can. Just go to politicalrewind.org. Click on the link that takes you to the page where you can get free tickets. And we would love to have you there on Monday night as we record the show for air next Tuesday. So that's the one big announcement I wanted to make. But I also, before we get into today's topics, I want to do a quick fact check. Uh, If you were listening to Rewind yesterday, you may have noticed it got to be a somewhat raucous show at times. And uh, because we talked about abortion, of course, there was some heated conversation. At one point, one of our panelists made the statement that young, younger voters are increasingly becoming pro-life. We didn't know where that came from. We didn't know the the source of the panelists' information. And it turned out, in fact, it was based on something that uh, he'd read in a number of newspapers or whatever. So I went in and I did a quick check. I looked at two of the most reputable pollsters in the United States, and I want you to know that the Pew Research Center shows that Young people, 18 to 29, in fact, are, believe that uh, abortion should be legal in all or most cases uh, by a good 25 percent. Um, 
and uh, only a handful say it should be illegal. And then I went to Pew Research, um, I'm sorry, to Gallup, and Gallup uh, did a poll on this. They say that uh, right now, um, let me see if I've got it right in front of me, 55% of uh, voters between 18 and 29 identify themselves as pro-choice, 38% as pro Life. So I just wanted to point that out uh, because when we have an opportunity to fact check something that's been said on the show, uh, we want to do that. Can, so, I, can I ask a question sure. about that? Is that of are course. those national numbers? Those are national those, numbers, okay. and the latest numbers. I'm sorry, thank you. Okay. 2018 uh, is the most recent polling on that, and in fact, they track that over a period of years, and the numbers do go up and down, but the trend has been toward younger voters being pro-choice, which. Greg, I don't think it's terribly surprising. Younger voters seem to be a bit more progressive than their parents. Yeah, uh, particularly with social issues and and, and the AJC's polling of Georgia voters reflects the same sort of trend. Okay. Even though it's a much smaller subset. All right. Um, Let's talk for a couple minutes about the big national story today, of course. That's Robert Mueller gave a statement today for the first time he appeared in public since he began the special investigation uh, more than two years ago. He said, this is it. He appeared at a podium in the Justice Department, which I thought in and of itself, Eric, was interesting. Given that he was going to be resting in the breast of the Justice Department, he wasn't about to uh, go off wildly critical of what was happening, what Barr had done, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I I think that... um his press conference today uh, sort of brought him back to who Robert Mueller is. I mean, he's someone with a distinguished career in public service, distinguished career in law enforcement. He did what he was asked to do, and he's been criticized by some, praised by others, and I think he just wanted to, you know, let, you know, have an opportunity to speak for himself and, you know, just say that's it. Stacy, he, he did say that he hopes this will be his only public statement on the report, that he did not want to testify. He felt that the report itself was his testimony. But let's read probably the money uh, quote from uh, his entire statement. He he said, um, if we had confidence the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Now, we've basically heard that in reading the report itself, or even the summary of the report that uh, William Barr put out. But to hear it come out of his mouth was a different matter. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that should give Republicans any comfort at all. Um, That's not a happy statement to hear about the president. Uh, I do hope, personally, that this is the end of the efforts to try to get Mueller in front of a camera, though. I've always thought if he went before Congress, he would simply say, the document speaks for itself, sort of like in a deposition when Somebody asked, what does the document say? Well, the document speaks for itself. I don't need to read it to you. And I think that's how he would refer to his report. And he said what he said, and and he doesn't have anything else to say. Uh, Cody, we have uh, statements. We asked for statements from members of Georgia's congressional delegation in the immediate aftermath, and we got a couple. David Perdue said, uh, quote, I've been calling for the Mueller report to be made public. I'm glad it's finally out so the American people can see the facts. We know the report concluded there was no conclusion, uh, no collusion, and the attorney general concluded there was no obstruction. It's time to move on. Let's start legislating and stop investigating. That's David Perdue. And then we got this from Doug Collins. And of course, uh, Cody, we know Doug Collins has become the first line of defense for President Trump, given his role as um, uh, the Republican leader on the Judiciary Committee, the ranking member on Judiciary. Here's what he said. Doug Collins, for the past two years, Robert Mueller has done something no one thought was possible in Washington, stay out of the spotlight and diligently conduct his work. Well, I had hoped he would come before the committee and answer questions from lawmakers. Robert Mueller has led an extraordinary life of public service. He's entitled to his life as a private citizen once again. And then he goes on and says, Special Counsel Mueller confirmed today what we knew months ago when this report was released. There was no collusion and no obstruction. And he goes on from there. So, Cody, we have from both Purdue and Collins this statement, no obstruction, no collusion. Uh, that isn't quite what Robert Mueller said today. You know, 
I think it was about an hour and a half before he spoke that they sent out an, a media advisor that he was going to speak. And I always say a silent prayer for all the comms folks up in D.C. that their entire day of what they had planned out is, is now thrown yeah. in the wastebasket. Yeah. Um, I think both Purdue and Collins had it right. I mean, and Doug Collins is my congressman. Um, and I hope that we can use this. In, in my opinion, I, I listened to what the special counsel had to say. I think you could sum it up in terms of what he had to say to read the report. Um, and I think now that we've kind of reached the end of this, he's essentially said he's not going to give any further testimony. Hopefully, I'm going to be optimistic here that the country can kind of use this as a pivot point, that Congress can get to work on things like maybe not taking seven months to pass the next relief bill for folks that are impacted by storms, maybe try to work on infrastructure, maybe... Hopefully, we can use this point to start getting some stuff done before we kick into the election cycle next year. Greg? It's the end of this phase, but I don't think it's the end of, of this at all. I mean, he, he formally closed his investigation. He declined to clear President Trump of, of, of obstruction of justice. Um, he said that Justice Department policy prohibits charging a sitting president with a crime, but he noted that the Constitution provides for another avenue. He didn't say impeachment, but he certainly alluded to, the, to that, to that um, avenue kind of kick the ball to Congress. Um, it's like, Congress, your new, your move is next. Yeah, I think it'd be wishful thinking if we think this yeah. is going to be over. <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be the topic of all the talk shows, cable talk shows tonight. And, you know, the Democrats are going to continue to pound the table and want to keep this going. Uh, so, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to turn the page. Um, and, of course, the White House is echoing this notion that uh, no, no obstruction, no collusion was the... Uh, outcome of this, uh, Stacey Evans. This this, this is going to linger all the way through the twenty twenty election cycle. Sure, but talk about fact checking. Yeah, we've had to fact check just three statements already, just sitting here uh, about the report. Uh, sounds like there's a couple of folks in Congress and in the White House that haven't read the report. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to watch how this unfolds. We, if we get any more statements from our delegation during the show, we'll uh, report them back to you. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, this is going to continue on and be an issue that I think we'll be talking about for a long time. And as Rick. you mentioned, 2020, you already seen a presidential candidate, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, come out and with his most strident comments supporting uh, the path towards impeachment. And you might hear some other presidential candidates do the same now that now that we have the this, this latest Mueller um, statement. Okay. Greg Bluestein, let's talk about a story that you filed yesterday, you and uh, uh, your colleague James Salzer, who works down <clears throat> at the Capitol, uh, an exclusive story about uh, digging in, get in more depth, looking at something that you'd been, you'd reported previously, but you had a lot more detail now, uh, about the state ethics chief, David Imadi, and uh, the first investigation he is taking on now that he's in that job. Yeah, David Amati had made the unusual statement once he took the job that one of his first acts would be to pursue more documents, more more details, an investigation into Stacey Abrams' campaign finances, as well as some unnamed Atlanta mayoral candidates. He followed through on that April 26th. He filed um, a subpoena seeking documents from Abrams and eight groups affiliated with her in some form or fashion, mostly left-leaning groups that either one of them was Verified Action, the group that she helped start fighting for voting rights. One of them is New Georgia Project, another group she helped start to, to, uh, to expand voter registration. And then several groups that either sprung up to support her or were already existing but put money, put, 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 uh, put heft behind her campaign uh, in some form or fashion. Um, what Amadi is seeking is all correspondence documents involving any sort of support they gave to her, any financial records, bank records, financial statements, um, a whole ledger of, of, of different things that he's, he's seeking. Um, and what he said in one of the correspondence back and forth between him and Stacey Abrams' attorney is that he's looking at four groups in particular, one of them headed, one of them was co-founded by Senator Nakima Williams, who's now the chairwoman of the Georgia Democratic Party, um, to see if they had surpassed their financial limits, if they have violated state law, state campaign finance law by giving too much money or giving too much support um, to Stacey Abrams' campaign. And of course, those groups all vigorously deny this. And, and Stacey Abrams' attorney says, um, she questions whether there's a coincidence that that they are seeking groups led largely by um, Latino or African-American leaders who supported Stacey Abrams. So let's be clear about something. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, this is the first major investigation launched since he became uh, head of the commission. He is a Republican, Eric. Uh, he uh, a pro- also a prosecutor from I think Douglas County, Douglas right? County. Um, and so uh, the question becomes: uh, we we know, Eric, that in the past there have been. Uh, questions raised about some of the finances surrounding Stacey Abrams' organizations. Um, we know there were some questions raised about her voter registration campaign, just in terms of sheer numbers of people uh, who she registered, although that's not a, really a part of this. I think this has more to do with finances. So um, so maybe there's something here that he wants to look at that matters, but how does this look that he takes on what appears to be a partisan investigation as his first act in this job? Well, I, I have to believe he thought about that before he did it, that people would accuse him of being political and partisan. So my guess is there's probably some there there. And uh, I guess the facts will bear out uh, through this process. Stacy, Well, I, I hope that Mr. Ramadi is not playing politics here. Um, I don't know him personally. I know of his professional reputation and uh, seems to be a good one. We'll find out. I think he probably would have been smart to to launch investigations of someone on the Republican side, too, at the same time. Uh, it's hard for me to believe there's not any sus- <clears throat> suspicious activity uh, that occurred in one of those gubernatorial campaigns as well. But obviously, I don't know that. Um, but I wonder, with, with all due respect to my friend Greg Bluestein, whether it is as big of a deal as it seems to be made out to be in the media. I, I talked to some folks that were at the first press conference that uh, Mr. Amati gave and his statements about issuing to suspe- subpoenas related to Stacey Abrams campaign was in response to a question. It wasn't something that he led with. This is what I'm coming out here to talk about. He was responding to a question and that ended up being the headline. And then now there have been the, these subpoenas, but we don't know what other subpoenas may or may not be out there. Yeah, no, good point. Um, you usually, when you have these state ethics officials, they keep things close to the vest. So the very fact that he was talking openly about pursuing an investigation of Stacey Abrams the day that he was being introduced publicly to the media was news. My colleague James Salzer covered covered that one. Uh, and we know that these subpoenas um, seem to be the only ones... Um, as, as far as we can tell, that have been issued involving gubernatorial candidates. Maybe, maybe you can illuminate if you've gotten one, uh, or if any of your campaign, um, anyone from your campaign has gotten one. Um, but he says he's auditing all the gubernatorial campaigns, um, and he said that on the record. Um, but what we what we know for sure now is that. Stacey Abrams and eight other affiliated groups have gotten these subpoenas. Well, Cody, you're here. Are you aware of any uh, audit that's going on with your campaign finances uh, that that uh, Imadi's taken up? Right. So I want to be clear that I'm here for the office of the governor, not necessarily <laughs> the campaign side. Right. Um, I'm not aware of any, but that wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility that I wouldn't know. Um, <clears throat> I think there are a, a couple things to keep in mind here. That there's a reason why we have a new director of the Ethics Commission. Um, the last one had several complaints that were put into the commission that he didn't act on. Um, the board felt that that was a problem. He was also using state government time for extracurricular activities that shouldn't have been going on. Um, so the other point I will make is that the governor doesn't appoint this individual. It's made by the board. The board's five folks. Um, it's a bipartisan board, and the governor's only had one appointment on that board since his time as governor. So and I'll also add that being a Republican, and Eric and I are glad to know this, is not a crime. So someone can be have, have served in a position as a Republican or voted Republican and still go on to do a very good job in public service. Um, so I'll say that, you know. Give it time. Right. Give it time. <laughs> right. Um, I'll say that I think everyone expects a state institution like the Ethics Commission to be above board, nonpartisan. Um, and that's the expectation that myself as a, as a Georgian would have of this guy. Um, so. so, Greg, I'm, Cody did make an important point there. We we do know or, or we, we that he, he, that Imadi's predecessor was slow walking a, uh, a number of complaints that had come mm-hmm. in. Do we what do we know about any partisanship behind what he was doing? Yeah, there were internal complaints, even from his own staffers, yeah. that, that um, Stefan Ritter was ignoring um, valid investigations out there. Uh, he ended up getting ousted f- for that and other reasons. Um, but 
we have not seen any any accusations. There was partisanship behind it. More of there were people that I guess laziness was one of the yeah. was one of the concerns. Right. Uh, and he got too comfortable or cozy in the job. He of course denies denies all that. Um, but there are any number of campaign violations that even us as reporters have have exposed and written about. And there's countless ethics complaints. So there's a lot of fodder for whoever's in the ethics office to investigate. And there just wasn't a lot of that investigation going on before. Cody? I think the other thing I was going to add that um, actually I heard Brian Robinson talk about yesterday is that once upon a time back in, in far, far history, there was a, a Republican governor who was investigated investigated by this very ethics commission. Um, it wasn't the same staff as it is now, but this group has went after Republicans before. And and I do think that that's interesting that there are Democrats that are trying to cast this individual and this board in a negative light. Well, I would um, maybe say that they should hold their horses and wait until maybe they look into an, I, a Republican I, at some point, and then they have to walk back all of their accusations. I think that makes a guy. certain amount of sense. You're a pretty shrewd communications guy, Cody. You proved that during the campaign, and you're proving it in the governor's office. Do you think possibly because of your understanding of how people perceive uh, news that comes out that it might have been a good idea if Amadi could have found some kind of Republican activity to investigate and announce them simultaneously? I'm always very glad to know that there are people who don't think like me. Um, and I think that Mr. Amadi, um, he's focused on doing the right thing, maybe not what um, the folks in the media or I may think is optically great, um, but I trust that he's doing the right thing. And until there's evidence to prove otherwise, yeah. we should trust the process. Well, you know, Stacey, let's uh, put a period on this because I want to get to a break in a minute. But so the Abrams people, of course, are uh, crying foul on this. They really think that this is totally partisan, that it's an attempt to uh, undermine Stacey Abrams. Uh, I suppose one of the proofs is going to be what happens when this investigation is complete if, if if in fact there's nothing substantive there then it's gonna it's gonna end up being a wash for abrams nothing to worry about in the long run i guess certainly if she if she thinks it's uh pure politics if that's the case then she should cooperate provide the proof and it'll be over and then she'll have the last laugh any last words because uh, Eric, you want to get a last word on this? Well, I think that she will, like she's done everything, will turn this into a political opportunity. And I'm sure we'll see her on cable, national cable news programs talking about how she's a victim. What a shock. Yeah. A Democrat or, for that matter, a Republican turning news into a political opportunity, Blue yeah. State. And look, they, they have. And, and yesterday you kind of saw that her fair fight action was yeah. had a gif out there saying uh, or gif. Uh, a fishing expedition. That was one of the quotes in, in, the, in right. the documents. But look, they, they also have said, hey, there, we could have technical technical right. issues. They, they raised $30 million. So so not all the, uh, the, the data points might be co completely correct. And they're looking to fix them. So it'll be interesting to see um, how many of these errors there are and if there's anything really big, substantive errors that, 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 that really violated, you know, that were flagrant violations of campaign finance. All right. Well, so in, what's interesting as we go to break is that Imadi has certainly put him himself a new position where people are going to be watching his office's actions in the months to come very, very closely. Uh, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we got a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. In the 1980s and 90s, activists fought to fast-track AIDS medicines by confronting the government. Now they're back at it. The new target? Cheaper access to an HIV prevention pill. I'm Ari Shapiro, taking on the high price of HIV medication this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. I, I do have a public service announcement to start this segment, which is this. 
no, I don't want to relitigate HB 481, the abortion bill, over and over and over again on every edition of Political Rewind. And as we talk about it a little bit today, I'm asking the panel to uh, follow along. Let's not relitigate the entire thing. But Cody Hall. <laughs> I was going to ask which bill you were referring to. <laughs> I think you know pretty well. Uh, Cody, I do want to ask you a question about this and then bring the whole panel in. Uh, we now know that Netflix has become the first production company that's spoken out uh, in opposition to the abortion law uh, in Georgia. Um, they're, it, I suppose the, the good news, if, if you're uh, in, in your office, is they're not pulling out of Georgia. Uh, they're saying, we'll stay here, but we're now going to contribute to the effort by ACLU and whatever other organizations eventually file suit to stop the law before it's uh, supposed to go into effect on January 1st. But here's what I want to ask you about that. Um, your boss, the governor, we've already discussed on this show a couple of times the red meat that he threw out about this at the state convention. Greg Bluestein reported on it then. We've talked about it on the show we're not going to let a bunch of Hollywood liberals essentially tell us about what our moral values ought to be. But, but here's what I'm curious to know. I, I get that you do that for the base. But at the same time, your office has got to figure out a way to communicate positively with the Los Angeles production companies. How are you starting to formulate how you're doing that? I think it starts off, so two years ago, actually, April 1st, um of 2019 was two years ago since the governor launched his campaign. And I think every time since he's not only re-emphasized his support of the tax credit program that we have here, but also the workforce development things that we have going on um, that make Georgia a great place, one of the top in the nation to produce films here. And he's, he's reiterated his support of that program and of the industry throughout this um, whole kind of episode we've had. I think, and he actually, we traveled down to Pinewood Studios mm -hmm. I think it was last week. All my weeks are blending together. But um, it, in the not-too-distant past, um, to talk to folks that are in, in the industry here, make sure that they knew how the governor felt. Um, and it was a good time. It was a good tour. But what's um, he saying to them? I think he's saying what he has said publicly. Um, that's – everyone will soon – if folks didn't pay attention on the campaign, they will soon find out that Brian Kemp is a guy that once he says something, he's going to keep his word. And during the campaign – um, he believed in this issue. He campaigned very clearly about how he felt. The other side made sure everyone knew how he felt about the issue. I think Jim Galloway had a few columns about how the other side was using um, the governor's stance on life um, throughout the campaign. Um, and, you know, up until now, and I think going forward, um, the state and the film industry have, have had a great relationship in business. And I think... Netflix and any other corporation or individual is fully within their constitutional rights to say that we're going to donate to group A or group B in order to fight the law. They can do that. But whenever you do take a position on a political issue, you have to get ready for the political dialogue that goes back and forth. Um, and the governor's been very clear about how he feels on this issue, and he's going to continue to be in the future. So, so thank you for that. Uh, I do think it's worth pointing out, Greg, that we're not talking about what we have heard so far is not not what you call genuine dialogue. What we heard was uh, was Cody's boss uh, call the uh, opponents C-list celebrities. It was insulting, and and that's why I was asking Cody. There's got to be another side to that. You you don't want to continue to insult the very people who are bringing millions and millions of dollars in jobs into well, the well, state. What the governor said at the convention was a departure from what he's been saying before. He, he's always kind of said, I fight for Georgia values and the Hollywood values. That's been his stock answer. At the convention, he went a step further and he mocked the C-list celebrities. He said, go ahead and boycott um, if you want. And, and, and that's now what, what you've, you have had to defend. I think there's a point to be made here that... Um there are not. There are folks on both sides of this issue that have passionate opinions, um, and all you have to do is go to Alyssa Milano's press conference when she was at the state capitol. Go to and listen to what some of the Democratic state legislators are saying about the governor and folks who supported this legislation. To know that the insulting language is not from one side. Um, I don't perceive the governor's language to be insulting. Um, I will say that it's insulting to me for a Democratic state legislator who's elected by folks to say that people that were in favor of this legislation have blood on their hands. That's just not constructive. And I think 
again, when issues like this come into the political sphere, you're going to have a dialogue back and forth. Um, and the governor's going to make his position clear and continue to stand up yeah. for that. Eric, I'd say a good amount of the uh, a, a good amount of the work you do at Denton's has to do with how you find middle, <laughs> you know, common ground but between people who are uh, uh, dealing with problems that they they would like to resolve. What do you say about this? How do you uh, how do you get past the insults and reach out in a productive way to the Hollywood community? Well, first of all, just to reiterate something Cody uh, alluded to, you know, one thing about Brian Kemp is, and I've been around a lot of politicians, and he he's someone that what he says in private is the same as what he says in public. So none of his actions and support for specific pieces of legislation should surprise anyone. I mean, he was very clear with where he stood uh, on on the life issue and very clear of where he stood as Cody pointed out, on the on the film industry. And we shouldn't just look at the film industry as Hollywood and Los Angeles. I mean, we're, we've got a industry here, yeah. uh, and we've got production facilities here that are tied to, you know, production uh, outfits in the U.K. And so it's not just California. And we have a lot of uh, business leaders in this state that have invested a lot in the Georgia film industry. And a lot of those people are supporters of the Kemp administration and, 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 and the governor. Now, with regards to Netflix, they have every right uh, to make whatever decisions they want to make. I will point out that, as you said, they have not pulled out. They're still filming here. And, you know, we'll see what happens uh, in the future. They could put, you know, resources to help, you know, oppose the law. But, uh, you know, the film industry is healthy here uh, in Georgia, and I, I think it's going to continue to grow and prosper. And I think, unfortunately, uh, this is becoming uh, more political by political officials making it more political. And I think it's going to hurt uh, the, the workers and the people that are involved in the industry. Some 92,000 Georgians, I think, is the last mm-hmm. number that I mean, I even, read. Even, even people you know, like Stacey Abrams, who I you know, made some you know, snarky comment about a little while ago. I mean, she even has said to the industry, don't take it yeah. out on, on, yeah. on those workers. Stacey, you want to jump in? A $9 billion economic impact. Uh, it's it's a big deal. Um, and I think to the comment about the C-list celebrities, um, I think that sort of illustrates the problem with the collision between governing and campaigning. And Governor Kemp is in, should be in governing mode, but you had this convention, he had to go, he had to speak, and he was caught up in the heat of the moment and he threw some red meat to the crowd, what they wanted to hear. But it was terrible from a governing standpoint because why would you insult the group that is making this $9 billion impact that's employing all these people. But I applaud Netflix. I think their response was exactly the right one. They're saying, we're going to stand up for what we think is right. We're going to stay and help. We're not just going to grandstand and talk about how bad this is. And so many, not so, some of the folks that were calling for a boycott have been here, but so many that were calling for the boycott are not even here. Yeah. And, and that frustrates me as a Georgian. I care about uh, the people of this state, I care that we have economic opportunities and job opportunities. So your talk is cheap. And so I, that's why I applaud Netflix for saying, I'm going to stand with you and fight for you because we do like the climate in Georgia and we want to be able to stay here. So we're going to try to make this an environment that we're all comfortable with. And to anybody that's further considering a boycott, I would say this. As a lawyer, I don't see how in the world this law is not enjoined. Um, yes, it will some law similar to this one or this one will make it up to the Supreme Court. But that's not the law right here now. There's no reason to leave. Stay here and make sure it doesn't ever become the law. Greg? Georgia film executives are heaving a sigh of relief after that Netflix because um, they showed a path forward that other studios can follow saying, you know, we object to the law, we'll we'll, we'll help fight the law, but we'll still stay in Georgia. And as Stacey pointed out, a lot of those people who were threatening boycotts had nothing to do with Georgia. And some of the people who have vowed to boycott the state are actually filming productions in Georgia as we speak. You know what I wonder? Um, We we know that since the law doesn't go into effect until January 1st, ACLU of Georgia is taking its time preparing its uh, brief. But 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 Greg, we we are also told that there are that some of the clinics here are already hearing from women who think the law is in effect, and so they're not sure whether they can actually have the procedure or not. Um, 
it, I wonder at a certain point whether uh, ACLU, just as a symbolic action, has to start. I mean, when were when are they planning to file their lawsuit? Can they wait until October? Doesn't that just keep this whole thing They've, hanging um, in the air in a way that's uncomfortable for everyone? And they let it be known it'll be later this summer. Okay. Um, yeah. But but we've been and, and actually that's where the responsibility is on the media a lot is is writing that there, there's a certain legal challenge and that the law won't take effect till January, but will but will almost definitively be blocked before then, just to let it be known. Because I've had friends wondering, asking all sorts of questions about, about this, um, who, who, who do read and who do, who do keep up with the media. So imagine the people who just kind of hear it here and there. Um, and we've, we've, we've sent reporters to, to, uh, to, to clinics who have heard from you know, medical abortion providers who have heard all sorts of stories about people freaking out and, and, and worrying that this has already taken effect. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on. Uh, There's been some some really kind of crazy language around this. And I'll I'll just mention it briefly. I mean, we now have the acting district attorney in Cobb County, uh, John Melvin, Mm -hmm. uh, comparing prosecutors who say they wouldn't prosecute uh, uh, women or doctors based on what he reads this law is allowing uh, to to the Nazis. uh, to I, I just Greg, if we're not careful, this thing is going to spiral out of control in a way that's just. And we hear it sometimes on this show. How often do we see district attorneys have such an open rift yeah. about what, a, yeah. whether or not they even force the law and what the law would mean if it does take effect? Some, at least one of them, says that he, it could theoretically be used to prosecute women who are seeking abortions. Many of them say that it could definitely be used to prosecute abortion providers, and several Democratic district attorneys say that they wouldn't use it at all to prosecute anyone. All right, so just to close this out, uh, what's it like to be in the middle of this storm right now, Cody? I'm a blessed guy. <laughs> Good answer. Right. Job security. All right. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about. Let's get to a break and we'll come back with more. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with children's book author and illustrator Myra Kalman and her son, designer Alex Kalman, about their new book and museum exhibit, Sarah Berman's Closet, the story of her mother, his grandmother, who went from a shtetl to Tel Aviv to New York and at age 60 left her husband, started a new life, and wore only white. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. I'm Sarah Amon. I own Out of the Blue in Blue Ridge, Georgia. We specialize in wines from around the world and high-end cheeses. And we also have craft beer. I think a lot of people that listen to GPB, it's just part of their day-to-day routine. I have people coming up from Atlanta just to see what Out of the Blue is all about because they hear our ads all the time, and they say so. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Great panel today. Stacey Evans is with us. So is Eric Tannenblatt, Cody Hall, the governor's press secretary, and uh, Greg Bluestein, of course. It's Wednesday. We always look forward to having you on, on our Wednesday show, Greg. Real quick, a uh, little news story. Michael Williams, one of Cody Hall's favorite people, <laughs> ran for governor, of course, for a while. Uh, he uh, Finally, they've found it. there's an end to his case in which he was accused of making a false report about having campaign computers stolen. And what was the outcome? Yeah, he pleaded guilty um, to those charges uh, about about lying to a GBI yeah. investigator and, and basically uh, fraud for reporting, falsely reporting that computer servers from his campaign office were stolen. It was a very bizarre report. Remember, it, it raised up a bright red red flag to me when, when I saw it on a local CBS affiliate um, right before the election where his campaign manager was saying it was political shenanigans. And this was even then, this was a candidate that was barely in getting any traction. He was he was in fifth place in all the polls. Um, this was before the deportation bus stunt that he pulled that got the most national attention and also secured his his last place finish. Uh, but he uh, he pleaded guilty to those charges. Was sentenced to four years probation, um, 120 hours of community service, and and a, and a small fine. Um, and the records were sealed. So we're not sure if uh, that that that. Co-op- that involved any sort of cooperation with authorities about any more charges. Okay, um, just wanted to put a 
punctuation mark, a finish to the Michael Williams story. I know Cody feels terrible for poor Michael Williams. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's it's actually a very sad story um, because I think if you talk to some of the folks that served with um, Michael Williams in the state Senate would say that he was a nice guy. Yeah. I, I got to know him briefly um, during the campaign even. Um, he seemed to be a very nice guy. It's, um, he has a beautiful family, a, a little girl that was just born actually during the campaign. Um, it's incredibly sad that something like this happened, um, but I'm glad that the legal process worked its way through. He was not the publicity hound. He was not like a grenade thrower that, that he be, that he came well, to be doing the... Yeah, I, I mean, I get that. And Cody, I yeah. thought that was a, a, an actually a really lovely statement, but I don't think we should forget, Stacey Evans, that this is the guy who stood there with an immigration bus... Uh, that broke down. That, that broke, broke down, down on the highway. I mean, uh, all right, uh, that's it's enough. A pretty, pretty hateful campaign. You do yeah. see how people change during these campaigns, yeah, though, you sure it, especially do. if they get bad advice. All right, um, let's move on. Uh, Greg, there's a new candidate in the 6th District, a Republican candidate for, uh, for that congressional seat, um, now owned by Lucy McBath. She's uh, Nicole Rodden. And I wanted to talk about her briefly because she's kind of an interesting person. She was a merchant marine. She was in the Naval Reserve. Uh, She's a pretty conservative Republican. Let's just listen to a, a clip from her video announcing her candidacy. People don't look at me and think merchant mariner, uh, naval reserve officer, or just being involved in any kind of uh, work environment where I sometimes was the only female. When there's this false perception of what a person is supposed to look like in a certain field, I'm so glad that I've broken the mold. One of the things that's interesting about her is that her mother is Ecuadorian, or Ecuadorian, and her father is Greek, uh, so she's uh, kind of got an unusual ethnic background. What does this mean for for Karen? Uh, handle to suddenly have another woman in that race up there. I mean, it could be trouble for her, but also she's the best known candidate among the three Republicans we know of now, and there's going to be another Republican entering the race soon, but she's the best known candidate um, in the field, of course, because she's run for statewide office several times, Senate, Governor, Secretary of State. She's won that district in the most expensive U.S. House race in the nation's history back in that special election just two years ago. Um, So the the fact that there's even more candidates could also help her because if she gets 35, 40 percent of the vote, no matter what, she'll get into a runoff. Um, the question, of course, what she wants is to get the 50 plus one and avoid any sort of overtime in that race and make it a clean, a clean victory so that she can take on Lucy McBath in the general election. Um, she's uh, this new candidate. Rodden's taking on a lot of the, the messages, echoing the themes that that Karen Hendel reentered the race with as well, though, talking about liberal socialism and and basically the anti AOC message that a lot of Republicans are taking on. She is as well. Yeah, we should um, uh, remember that candidates up there, those are their videos. There's pictures of AOC, pictures Mm -hmm. of Ilan Omar, pictures of Nancy Pelosi, uh, Stacey, and all of it now. The central theme that's emerging for Republican candidates in congressional races and from President Trump is the Democrats want to impose socialism on Americans. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's an interesting spin on the truth. Uh, but I, I applaud the the effort, and I, I I appreciate the Republicans making a centrist out of Nancy Pelosi, which is essentially what's happened. Um, yeah. But I think Nicole Rodden <laughs> seems like exactly the kind of candidate uh, that would make a great Republican candidate for the sixth congressional district, and really give. Lucy McBath, a good run, uh, which is probably exactly why she will never get out of the Republican primary. (laughs) Well, I will say there is a comparison to AOC. I I watched the video and there was a little bit of AOC, Beto O'Rourke in there. I mean, I think she was doing her hair and, you know, filming her husband. Um, But uh, I do think, uh, you know, Greg makes a very good point. Um, You know, this is going to be an expensive race. And I, it, you know, it takes money to get your name ID up. I don't know if she's going to self fund, if she's going to go out and raise money. I don't think she's very well known uh, in the, you know, grassroots and business community. Uh, I guess the next disclosure period ends on June 30th, so we'll see how much money she, you know, can put in the bank. Karen Handel has very high name ID, and so she's not going to need as much money as some of these unknown candidates will. I think one uh, dynamic, too, 
uh, is you know you have a lot of consultants out there right now that are shopping for candidates and they're finding these candidates and selling them on how I'm going to make you the most attractive candidate you can win this primary. They're they're obviously you know have their own vested interests and I think you're starting to see a lot of that. That is such a great point and we haven't talked about that. I'm glad you were, Cody. I know you're agnostic when it comes to Republican <laughs> primaries. You Aggressively have to be. so. But Eric makes a terrific point. This is the time that consultants, and in fact, we're almost past time in some cases, Republican and Democratic consultants are out there shopping around looking for a paycheck for the 2020 cycle. It's a feeding frenzy. Um, (laughs) I think in both the 6th and the 7th, you have to watch a few things. Number one, who's going to raise the money? Um, Because that's that's crucially important um, that I think often goes unnoticed um, in these kind of conversations. The other one, manpower. You've got to have people that believe in you that will go knock on doors, put mail pieces and mailboxes for you. Um, and the other thing is you've got to be able to drive a message that is is focused. Um, these primaries are going to get dirty, but the only your overwhelming message has to be something that the average Republican primary voter is going to say, yeah, I like that person. And that's hard to do. It's a whole lot harder than it sounds. And you have to have a path to victory, right? I mean, you have to, you have, to have some sort of semblance of why you can, let's say if you're, if you're Rodden, why you can beat Karen Handel, and, who's, who's much better known in the 6th District, or if you're in the 7th District, where there's already, I don't know, a dozen candidates, <laughs> if you count them all, why there's any sort of path um, if you're a Democrat, why you can be Caroline Bordeaux, and if you're a Republican, how you can emerge from the very, very crowded field. Um, uh, so we think there might be another woman jumping into the sixth another district. Man, An- yeah, oh, another candidate another jumping candidate in. Another candidate Pro- jumping probably in. Probably next week on the GOP side. On the Republican side, and we expect um, more candidates in the seventh district. Uh, I'm sure that we well, we could be hearing from Renee Unterman in the in the near future too on on that side. So these races are not yet settled, and it's well they shouldn't be because it's still a year and a half until the election. <laughs> but um, they're starting to gel a little bit more. All right, this is the sort of item. Did you want to sh- jump in? I was on just going to say, Greg. It it feels like you know. Greg and I often talk to each other more than we do our own families. It feels like we just got done with an election. <laughs> so yeah. we're, we're getting started again. And there are certainly days where I see uh, both the marquee candidates in the gubernatorial race <laughs> within hours of each other. So, um, I want to try to carve out two minutes at the end of the show to talk about a relationship that you finally made public between two congressional candidates. But let's put it on hold for just a minute. Um, Maureen Downey, uh, Cody had a column, her her Get Schooled column in the AJC, in which she talked about Common Core, and again, your boss at the Republican convention, uh, saying, uh, I think we're going to have to finally get rid of Common Core. And Maureen points out that, uh, that there's been a misconception about Common Core for a long time now. It was Eric Tannenblatt's former boss, Governor Sonny Perdue, who was co-chair with a number of governors around the United States, who created Common Core, and yet it is now viewed by the most conservative uh, voters out there as having been imposed by the federal government. Do you guys really have a plan to get rid of Common Core that's come together, or is that sort of an aspirational thing the governor mentioned at the convention? And so I think that there's been stories on this that Greg's written where both at the DOE level, at the Department of Education and our office are working on on solutions that, that we can work on together. I think a couple things. Number one, again, this is something that the governor campaigned on for two years that was in almost every stump speech. Um, and it was one of those things where we, it was in the speech at the convention um, and Greg picked it up. But I think, and Eric can forgive me for this answer, I, I think Common Core, I think a lot of folks can agree that it was a well-intentioned program. But I think in the in, the implementation, it's not just base voters on the Republican side that have negative uh, opinions about the issue. I mean, you had Lori Geary on the other day who who was saying that, you know, I am having problems being able to work math and reading with my kids when they come home with schoolwork. And that's something that the governor heard on the campaign trail. People came up and said, look, I think we should have standards, but these things make it so incredibly hard for me to work with my child in classwork. And I think Republicans and Democrats can agree that a child gets the best education when it's not just in the classroom, but whenever their parents can engage at home to help them with their Stacey, work. Stacey, this doesn't seem to be a partisan, an entirely partisan issue. There are parents on both sides of the aisle that seem to have differing views about what Common Core is all about. Well, I think we have to step back and say, what is the, what's the point of education? Is it to 
make life easier for parents or is it to educate our kids? It's to educate our kids. Um, I don't want to um, I don't want to lower expectations for our kids. I also don't want uh, to be wedded to a style of learning just because it's what I learned and it makes it easier for me when my kid comes home. I think what Common Core represents is standards. When should a kid be able to do certain things, multiplication, fractions, things like that? So Common Core is not new math, um, which I think is what we're talking about here without without saying it, this new math and the new way that kids are taught to round and add. It's better. It's better. We figured out a better way. It's more logical. It's more applicable to more situations. Yes, it's weird if you didn't learn it. I'm going through it with my child right now. But that's my burden. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to put a burden on on the teachers to to tell them not to do something that I know is better for our kids. But that's not Common Core. That's new math. Well, unfortunately, what Common Core started out to be and what it is today are two different things. And, you know, when, when it started out where, where algebra in Georgia is the same as algebra in New Mexico, there's not algebra is not different in each state. Unfortunately, what happened was President Obama uh, embraced it. And we live in this hyper-partisan uh, you yeah. know, society. He created today. race to the top and embraced the Common Core standards and as, it spun a, out as of a control. basis And now for you that. can't even have a you know a conversation about what was really the original intent. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're running out of time. We'll see how that unfolds, Cody. We're waiting to see what your boss is going to do about this. And we'll talk about it, I guarantee you. Uh, <laughs> Greg, uh, finally, we've only got a minute or so. You blew the whistle the other day <laughs> on a long-held secret on this secret. show. Two of our panelists on Political Rewind, who've been on frequently, we've known for a long time, they were kind of crazy about each other, and now they're each running for Congress, and you wrote about them the other day. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, Brenda Lopez, Michael Owens, it's not like it was any secret to anyone in Democratic circles or any who had been One to One of the worst-kept secrets. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very badly kept secret, or on Facebook. Uh, but once they both announced they were running for different congressional seats, we He's thought... He's in the be, 13th, and she's up there in the 7th. In the 7th. We thought it'd be a really interesting story about two candidates, two, two star-crossed lovers from across metro Atlanta running for different seats. And uh, very rarely, we've we've had congressional couples before, but very rarely are they both challenge uh, running for open seats. I don't. We had we found no examples of, of any candidates running in separate districts uh, as a couple right. at the same time. Well, without regard to whether their ph- political philosophies are right or wrong, whether they're Democrats, which they both happen to be or not. Oh my gosh! I don't know about you, Stacy, but I hope they both either win or both either lose because <laughs> any other outcome is going to make life miserable for one of them. Come Completely agree. Completely All right. Agree. That's it for today's show. We're out of time. Uh, Stacey Evans, Eric Tannenblatt, Cody Hall, Greg Boosting. thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're off tomorrow, but we're back at 2 o'clock on Friday. I hope you can join us for Political Rewind. And again, go to politicalrewind.org and sign up to come see us in Cartersville next Monday night at 7 o'clock. Take care.